This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. This week, we have as our guest, Dr. Clive Fields, an award-winning physician with more than 30 years of experience practicing primary care. Dr. Fields is the co-founder and chief medical officer for Village MD, a leading national provider of value-based primary care services that partners with physicians to provide the tools, technology, operations, staffing support, and industry relationships to deliver high-quality clinical care and improve patient outcomes, while also reducing total cost of care. In the years since Dr. Fields co-founded Village MD, it's grown to 15 markets, and it's responsible for more than 1.6 million patients. Village MD is also the largest participating sponsor of CMS's new direct contracting program and serves more than 56,000 patients within that new value-based payment model. In 2021, Village MD received a $5.2 billion investment from Walgreens Boots Alliance, which is looking to expand its healthcare offerings and has chosen Village MD as a partner. This significant multi-million dollar investment will accelerate the opening of at least 600 village medical locations at Walgreens primary care practices in more than 30 U.S. markets by 2025 and 1,000 by 2027. With more than half of those practices in medically underserved communities, Dan, I couldn't be more excited to share this story and think that Dr. Fields is making such an important impact on the state of value-based care in our country. Eric, you got that right. Dr. Fields is definitely doing great work in driving value-based care in our country, and the industry is taking notice. In 2020, Dr. Fields was named to Modern Healthcare's list of the 50 most influential clinical executives, and more recently was named to the 2021 list of the 100 most influential people in healthcare. He's also had the privilege of being honored as the American Academy of Family Physicians Physician Executive of the Year. It's been an incredible journey in value-based care for Dr. Fields over the last few years since he founded the Village MD. 
primary care group of 13 physicians in 2013. In the years since, he's grown into a network of over 2,500 primary care affiliates with more than $3 billion of total medical spend in value-based contracts. The programs he's put in place, such as the medical home model and other practices to improve care for patients with chronic conditions, has shown demonstrable improvement in hospital readmissions, among other things. Dr. Fields is definitely a leader in this race to value that's helping family physicians succeed for the future of value-based care. Let's go ahead and hear from the man himself, Dr. Clive Fields, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Dr. Fields, welcome to the Race to Value podcast. It's so great to have you on the show. I'm really looking forward to the conversation, and we've been following your work for uh, quite a while now here at the ACLC. No, thanks a lot for the opportunity to, to talk today and kind of get a chance to share a little bit more about Village and the way we think about value-based care as, as we move into what are really exciting times for, for primary care docs and for, for the patients that we have the opportunity to serve. Dr. Fields, I'd like to start our conversation today with this intersection that we're seeing with value-based care delivery and consumerism. When you founded Village MD, you realized that a primary care-driven patient-centric model is the core of a successful value-based care strategy. And you had this vision for how delivering primary care in a coordinated way, augmented with accurate data and teams of support professionals could significantly impact clinical quality and cost. And over the years, we've seen that these types of high-touch primary care models have shown to increase access to care, reduce hospital admissions, improve outcomes. However, what has always differentiated your patient-centered primary care model is how consumer-focused it is. And you once stated in an interview that, quote-unquote, we must think about the patient the same way as other service providers think about their customers. Meet them where they are. Consider not only what they need, but what they want. Success requires affability, availability, and ability. And with Village MD, you've built this powerful nexus between primary care and retail by internalizing lessons learned from companies and other industries outside of healthcare. So I wanted to ask you your thoughts on, as a healthcare industry as a whole, how can we make personalized care and customer service the primary currency of value-based care delivery? And then with regard to Village MD specifically, how will the recently announced partnership with Walgreens help your model expand beyond its healthcare offerings so it can scale and provide even more of an outsized impact in improving patient health outcomes, especially for those in underserved communities. It's funny when, when I said that quote that what you need to be successful in healthcare is accessibility, affability, and ability. And I'll tell you where I heard that first. I heard that from my dad. And my dad practiced medicine in Houston for, um, for over 30 years and practiced in Canada and Scotland before that. And a lot of what I explained to him as, quote, a value-based healthcare delivery system he describes as, as good old-fashioned patient care. And, and I say to him frequently, you know, Dad, we call our patients when they leave the hospital. And he looks at me a little bit quizzical, and he'll say, well, we always did that. And I'll say, well, Dad, sometimes if our patients are disabled or can't get to the office, we actually will go and see them in their home. And, and again, he looks at me, he's not exactly sure what it is that we've come up with. And, and I think there's a lot to recognize there. And that is, is that the patient was the center of the healthcare delivery system for a long time. And we sometimes got away from that and we got away from it for all kinds of, of misaligned incentives and reasons and, and, and things that when you actually strip out, what this is really about is a trusted relationship between a patient 
and, and a doctor. And I expand that to include all members of a clinical care team. And it's not dissimilar from the way that my father practiced starting in 1961 in a national healthcare system where primary care really was the center of the way that people accessed healthcare. But I'd like to think that it's not just value-based care that really puts the, the, the patient at the center of, of the system, but that it's healthcare in general. And, and shame on us that we let that, that really slip away. I took a lot of the learnings from, from working with my dad for, for the last 20 years of, of his career. And, and a lot of that you now see in, in models like Village MD, where we truly believe that a proactive and risk stratified approach to care using a clinical care team and not just a physician um, is the way to deliver what I'm gonna call are, are the best outcomes. I, I'm gonna challenge you a little bit on, and I'll go right to the name of your, of your podcast because we use the word value now almost synonymously with margin or with profit. And, and I'm gonna suggest that that's not what value-based care is. What value-based care really is, is, is providers being paid on an outcome-based model instead of a volume-based model. And if we think about what our patients really want as the center of, of the healthcare system, they want, it, they want prevention, they want wellness, they wanna manage their chronic disease as well, and they wanna end their lives on their own terms. And unfortunately, for, for much of the last 30 or 40 years, we've gotten away from some of those really simple kinds of, of strategies. And I, I'd like to think at Village that we're, we're bringing back a lot of what was good in healthcare when Marcus Welby was on TV and docs like my dad were practicing in offices around the country and wrapping that with technology and data and allowing us to scale those services through the use of teams. I think you asked a little bit about, about our recently announced strategic partnership with Walgreens, and we couldn't be more excited about it. In, in many of the communities across the country where, where we work and where patients live, the, the pharmacist is, is many times the first and sometimes the last line of healthcare advice. And they do a remarkably good job at delivering that advice within the confines of their training and license. Being able to work with those clinical pharmacists in locations that are convenient and safe and secure and comfortable for patients to go to, especially those living in underserved markets, I think it's going to bring primary care to people who didn't realize the value of a long-term primary care relationship. I trained at Bentop Hospital in, in, in Houston and at Cook County in Chicago, and I think any of the clinicians on, on this call will know that, that many of those patients just don't understand that there is a different and more appropriate way to manage the healthcare system, and the healthcare system hasn't met their needs. So people working for an hourly wage from, from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. are not taking three hours out of their day to go and have their blood pressure checked, but they will on a Saturday morning or maybe later at night or maybe through a virtual connection. So we're, we're really excited about this relationship, our ability to scale, and most importantly, our ability to scale into markets where many healthcare providers um, ha have a vote and results that, that continue to make us double down on the strategy. And, and again, couldn't be more pleased with the relationship. Dr. Fields, I really appreciate your comments on underserved communities. And I wanted to expand upon that in this next question. Racial disparities in care and health equity have been particularly elevated to a more prominent part of the national dialogue on healthcare as the COVID-19 pandemic has shown just how dysfunctional care systems are in providing equitable outcomes for all. How is Village MD looking at this equity imperative to focus your efforts in value-based care to deliver the equitable outcomes for everyone, including those that are vulnerable, socioeconomically disadvantaged, and living in communities of color? 
exciting things for, for myself and for my colleagues is the way that, that an outcome-based and reimbursement model and value-based care really addresses some of the health inequities that, that we see in, in our community. I mean, many patients who are in greatest need of access to primary care really struggle with that. And they live in areas without appropriate transportation or areas where, where doctors have chosen not to locate their offices. And what we see in, in the model that we work in now is, is that there is a model that supports us moving physicians into markets and areas where they typically would not have been found in a traditional fee-for-service model. And there's nothing more satisfying to a physician to actually make the kind of impact that you can on an, an overweight, hypertensive diabetic who once under control greatly diminishes their chances of ever needing end-stage renal disease treatment. So I, I think one of the, the blessings of, of the value-based movement has been the ability to take primary care to places it, it previously didn't exist. And for most of us who chose primary care as, as a calling and as a profession, it's consistent with the reason that we did, that we really wanted to make a difference in patients' lives, that we really want to make a difference in the chronic disease states and the outcomes that they have. And, and I, I'm blessed and, and certainly inside village and organization of our size and scale can make a difference across communities and really all over, all over America. I mean, we work in large urban communities, and we work in small rural communities, and we work in neighborhoods somewhat classified as rich or poor or minority dominated or, or majority dominated. What we see is, is that doctors with empathy and compassion and the types of tools that we provide them at Village can deliver care to what many people would say are the most challenging patients. But, but I would challenge that and actually say that those are the patients that are not most challenging, but most in need of our services. So couldn't be more pleased with, with the way that, that, that the value-based movement and, and outcome-based reimbursement is allowing us to reach into neighborhoods that, that previously have never experienced the kinds of care we've delivered in other neighborhoods across the country. Well, Dr. Fields, as we discuss consumer-centric care delivery, I'd like to hear your perspective on how technology plays a role. I mean, healthcare costs in America are a major driver in individual and household debt, and some might think investments would increase those costs. However, we're actually seeing that a more digital-forward, consumer-forward health experience that achieves better clinical outcomes and helps physicians form better partnerships with their patients – is made possible through these uh, technology investments and patients have better outcomes when they're engaged. So investments in digital health platforms are a great place to focus. And by creating an enhanced interaction with consumers and helping them connect with healthcare services they need, you're able to provide them with an omni-channel experience they want and helps them be well and live happier and healthier lives. And so I wanted to get your perspective on that and specifically around Walgreens. I mean, last year with the announcement, the collaboration, there was also some uh, collaboration around technology, as I understand. And Walgreens has a, a Walgreens Find Care, which is a digital platform and marketplace for localized health services, allowing it to be part of a national network of telehealth providers and connecting patients with convenient and affordable access to quality care. So can you describe how Village Medical is leveraging digital health to ensure that patients receive personal, accessible, and coordinated care? And as we transition 
from a pandemic to an endemic state, will virtual care continue to play a role in primary care to support annual wellness visits and chronic condition follow-up? So it's it's really interesting because three years ago, this is probably a question that you would not have asked um, because no one could have predicted the unbelievable acceptance by both providers and patients of virtual health care. And if anything good, if anything at all comes out of this pandemic, it might be the acceleration and acceptance of, of different technologies. So first and foremost, we at Village don't think that, that virtual health is, is a provider. We think virtual health is a platform for providers to access and become accessible for their patients. So I don't think of a virtual health platform as my doctor, the same way I don't think of AT&T as my doctor or my iPhone as my doctor or all kinds of other platforms that, that patients and providers have used in the past. We, we think of it as a platform that increases dramatically accessibility and availability for, for patients who otherwise might not be able to see their doc. In, in a time that is most convenient for what we're driving to, which is a consumer-centric care delivery model. I think one of the most interesting things about the use of virtual care during this, this pandemic was how it, is, is how it's evolved over the last almost two years. What started out at first as, as really a way to deliver traditional care safely from a distance in our organization and in conversations with other organizations is really morphed into something much broader than that. I'm going to say that 99% of our virtual visits were delivered by, by a physician when, when the pandemic first started. We now see a virtual platform being used and not just by physicians, but by nurses and by care managers and by social workers and behavioralists, all getting more comfortable with a different way of delivering services it was really forced on them because of, of the inherent dangers during the pandemic of face-to-face of -face contact. So I believe that those services will continue to rise as we return to not a normal face-to-face -face percentage, but a flat line where we might see 80% um, of, of visits provided for a Medicare population in, in person and 20% digitally, more digitally for, for the commercial population or those that are more comfortable with, with technology and moving and living in places where they may not be able to maintain a consistent delivery point with, with a particular physician or, or clinic or, or care team. Um, but we're excited about it. We actually think that what started out as a physician-driven acute type of platform has rapidly morphed into a care team chronic disease type of platform. And in the economic models that now support value-based care, and I think about global capitation, the idea of reaching out more and more frequently to touch patients with more and different members of your care team, at least in our data, continues to show that there are literally never too many touches, and that those touches don't all have to be delivered by a physician. We have seen it morph over the last two years. I certainly expect it'll look different than, than I expect two years from now, but I don't think there's any question that it will remain a really important platform for physicians and providers and care teams to reach out to their patients. Dr. Fields, you mentioned earlier in a response that we wouldn't be having this conversation about digital technology as part of healthcare a couple of years ago. And now here we are at this point where I think we would we also wouldn't have been talking about the integration of pharmacists a couple of years ago into ambulatory care settings without this value-based movement. And although pharmacists are most often associated with dispensing medications in retail pharmacies, their roles now evolving to include providing direct care to patients as members of integrated healthcare provider teams. 
And collaborative care models that include a clinical pharmacist have been shown to alleviate some of the demand for physician-provided care. They facilitate access to primary care services, especially those related to medication monitoring and chronic disease management. With the increasing number of medications prescribed per patient, the need for this chronic disease management and the importance of medication adherence, there are many areas of opportunity for integration of these clinical pharmacist services within the team-based care environment. For ACOs and DCEs that have outcomes-based reimbursement, the medication adherence impact on costs through reduced inpatient hospital stays and emergency visits associated with things like CHF, diabetes, hypertension, it's in the thousands of dollars per patient per year. And I know this pharmacy integration strategy played heavily into the consideration of partnering with Walgreens pharmacies to open hundreds of primary care clinics co-located with Walgreens pharmacies. And this enhanced level of coordination between patients, primary care physicians, and pharmacists is showing great results so far. Village Medicals found that hospital admissions were 28% below the Medicare benchmark, and emergency department visits were 46% below the benchmark after implementing the program. Can you discuss further the importance of integrating pharmacists into primary care-based ACOs and DCEs? as a potential solution to the looming crisis in access to primary care, as well as the opportunity to enhance care, raise physician satisfaction and support practice sustainability? You know, for, for years, people talked about pharmacists as the most underutilized resource in healthcare. And for years, people talked about pharmacists as the most underutilized resource in healthcare. And nobody ever did anything about it. It was very typical to what we've done in our model. We took our clinical pharmacists and we put the majority of them in hospitals to act reactively to exacerbations of chronic disease, which if you think about the model, I think we'd all like to move to, they should be used much more proactively to actually decrease the incidence of those exacerbations. When I talk about, about healthcare and I talk about pharmacy integration, I always like to bring up that the most common interaction that a patient in this country has with the healthcare system is a primary care visit. And the most common intervention that a patient has in this healthcare system is a pharmaceutical, is dispensing, dispensing of a pharmaceutical. So the idea of taking those two common events and putting them in a place where they could be administered with a single theme, it just inherently makes sense. And you know, I'll, I'll go back even to what I referenced on the first question. If you go back to the 60s and the 70s, where, where do you find primary care doctors? You find them living in communities where they serve with offices typically in their own homes and dispensing pharmacies wherever regulations actually allowed it. And we did that because it made sense. And, and somehow we lost sight of that as we moved away from a consumer-driven healthcare system and to much more of a provider-oriented healthcare system. And, and we, we couldn't be more pleased with the integration of clinical pharmacies. We had pharmacies at Village Medical prior to our relationship with Walgreens. And what we learned in those pharmacies was a number of things that we could drive both an improved patient experience and improved patient outcome. And something a lot of people don't realize, which is actually an improved physician experience which we believe is something that you have to consider as you put different care plans and strategies in place. And we work with our, our pharmacies in a collaborative way where we have an agreement that allows them to do a couple of things for us that significantly change both the patient experience and the physician experience. And I'll, I'll bring those, a couple of those up. I take a cholesterol medicine. I go to my doctor every six months. I run out of those pills every six months. 
I go to the pharmacist and the pharmacist says, you got to go and see Dr. Sue, you're out of your medications. With our collaborative care agreement, that pharmacist actually within certain drug categories can give me a month of prescriptions and allow me time to make that appointment, which is what we call a, a bridge refill. So it significantly decreases some of the, the non-adherent things that happen between, uh, between office visits. The other thing that happens is, is many times physicians will write a drug that is equivalent to a formulary product, but not on a formulary. What happens is if the pharmacist says, this isn't on your formulary, it'll be $250 instead of five. But I can fax your doctor and he'll get right back to me and we can change it for the drug that's on your formulary. Well, anybody that's ever worked in a primary care doctor's office knows that those faxes rarely receive a high priority type of, uh, of attention. And many times the pharmacist will, will call, the patient will return to the pharmacy multiple times and just to get one prescription that if the pharmacist had the opportunity to change to an equivalent form, equivalent formulary drug and could have done at the point of contact. While this is all going on, there's a significant decrease in the amount of faxes and calls and requests that come into physicians' offices, allowing them to actually care for the patients in front of them and not spend what we call pillow time, kind of solving the hundreds of items that are, that are in their inbox. So we see an improved clinical result. We see a better patient experience. And, and not to be diminished, we see a better provider experience with integrated pharmacy. It's a pleasure to work with our, our pharmacy colleagues. We continue to find more and more ways that they want to engage in clinical care, which in the traditional retail pharmacy model um, has really not been something that's been available to them. And I, I just don't know anybody who went to pharmacy school to count and, and to, to dispense pills. And that was the day or, or direct people to where the Q-tips were. And for that grossly underused professional pool, we think we're the first and we will certainly not be the last to recognize that they should and can be an integral part of our care teams. Dr. Fields, I'd like to talk to you about another innovation in patient-centric primary care delivery, and that's home-based care. And this is being covered extensively in healthcare media. I mean, even just this morning as we're talking and doing this interview, McKinsey and Company released a study, and they showed that $265 billion worth of care that's currently being delivered in traditional facilities for Medicare fee-for-service and MA patients, which is about 25% of the total cost of care, that's going to shift to the home by 2025, and that represents a three- to four-fold increase in the current spend at home for this population today. And obviously, this is a tremendous opportunity for those organizations in value-based care. When given that the clinical infrastructure in communities across the country has been stretched to the breaking point during these successive waves of COVID-19 surges, and we're seeing now exposed various workforce shortages and access issues, supply chain challenges, weakness in our public health infrastructure, this is a, a really opportunistic time to think about how home-based care, and maybe this was brought about through the upending of our system you know, due to the pandemic, but we have to really think about how care access can be redefined. And I know Village MD has become a national leading example of home-based care delivery with this creation of Village Medical at Home, which is a segment of Village MD. And this in-home program is designed to give patients and caregivers flexible solutions and ensure seamless communication 
communication between care providers, and it's a model that is an enabler to improve outcomes with underserved populations as you can care for many of the most vulnerable patients, especially those that are frail, elderly, and do not have reliable transport systems. So I wanted to ask you if you could describe the Village at Home medical model to share some of the outcomes that Village MD has realized with that model in, in providing longitudinal comprehensive in-home assessment and providing care planning with primary care to help those patients most in need. I'll be happy to. I think um, part of this, of, of the, the lack of home-based care in the past and the growing need for a recognition of it now, it is partly related to the hubris of physicians. We actually believed that the 15 minutes that we spent with a patient two, three, or four times a year was enough to actually drive an improved healthcare result. And when you step back and think about it, it's almost silly to give us that kind of credit because we know that what happens between visits is far more important than what actually happens at a visit. We also know that we get a distorted view of our patients' capabilities, interests, and social issues um, in the 50 minutes that we see them. And it reminds me of a couple I, I took care of for probably 25 years. And it was a charming couple, and, and they were managed, I, I, I hope, to their satisfaction at, at Village. And then I was notified that the, the male spouse had, was in hospice at home. And I wanted to, to go and, and pay my regards and, and effectively say goodbye. So I went to their house and had the opportunity to do that. But what I left with was this understanding that I had completely misinterpreted the social situation that this couple lived in. They were far poorer and had far less resources than I ever imagined. And why is it important? Because I suspect that I had made recommendations over the 25 years of that care that actually weren't appropriate for them or, or may have been completely out of context for given the situation that I, I ultimately learned about. So we think of a village at home, not as a standalone product, but as part of the continuum of care that we offer to patients throughout their health journey. Very early on when we launched Village at Home, my partner, Tim Berry, the CEO at Village MD, who is not a clinician, said, you know, I, I want to go on, on these home visits. I want to see what it is that you actually see. And I remember going on these visits where we would go and, and visit people, and it might have been an older an older man living by himself with some family who would come in in the evenings and in a two-bedroom home. And in one bedroom, there was just boxes and boxes of DME supplies that were being delivered, a bed with a hoist not in the bed in the bedroom that he actually lived in and oxygen canisters that were piling up dangerously in the garage. And I remember one visit with Tim where for those of you who, who know that beep that happens when your fire alarm starts to wear out, we were in the home and this beep was going off incessantly. And I, we kind of looked at each other and we asked the, the gentleman we were visiting how long that had been going on. And he said he really didn't know, but there's nothing that he could do about it. And Tim pulled the chair over, stood up. He's about six, he's over six feet tall and changed a battery in the, in the fire alarm. And, and I wonder how much what Tim did was far more valuable to improving his health and maintaining his sanity as anything that had been delivered through his DME or his oxygen or his home health care provider. So we really see home-based care, and I'm going to suggest that McKinsey study is probably grossly under-recognized because as we increase capabilities that we can deliver at home with remote monitoring, with urgent care delivered in, to home-based settings, I actually think that number is going to be far higher. And I think 
ultimately we'll get to the point where we'll be able to meet what patients want, which is to receive healthcare in the safest possible way in the environment that they choose. There are very few people who actually want to spend time in a hospital ward or, or in an ICU. Almost all of them have given the option to receive an equivalent level of care in the convenience and comfort of their own home will choose to do that, especially as we move towards palliative care and, and end of life care and those really difficult conversations that are much easier to have in a comfortable surrounding and surrounded by caregivers that, that understand the patient's needs. So we're, we're, we're super, super pleased with, with that part of our clinical model. We think it will continue to grow, not just in terms of primary care being delivered in, in a home-based setting, but in terms of the scope of services that will be delivered. And I want to distinguish this from, from home health care because we continue to partner with our home healthcare organizations and our DMEs, but this is, this is different. This is comprehensive primary care delivered in the home many times with an equivalent scope of services, and I think soon to be more than what you can actually deliver in a, in a traditional office setting. So kind of a long-winded answer to me agreeing wholeheartedly with the gist of the McKinsey study and, and really excited about being able to deliver care again, in a consumer-centric way where patients actually want to receive it and where it can be delivered at an appropriate quality and a lower cost. Dr. Fields, what makes Village MD truly unique in its approach to value-based care is that it serves patients across all ages, socioeconomic statuses, types of insurance coverage, and products and geographies. This is so difficult when you think about it. Many other high-touch, relationship-based primary care companies only focus on one of these demographics, like full-risk Medicare Advantage or DPC models that contract directly with employers to care for a commercially insured population. Many advanced primary care practices would fail under this model because they wouldn't be able to operationalize the care model and playbook strategy without getting overwhelmed with the nuance. Instead, they're finding it easier to have a more myopic, hyper-focused view on one particular patient segment. But here you are, VillageMD is able to handle a risk portfolio across all payer types and perform very well. For patient populations enrolled in Medicare Advantage in 2020, VillageMD's annual cost reductions across mature markets were more than $2,300 per patient, and with Medicare star quality ratings of four to five stars. At the same time, Village MD is driving significant cost reductions with $720 in annual savings per commercial patient and $1,000 or more per Medicare patient. The business has delivered high quality care to its patients with the utilization of high cost services, meaningfully below Medicare and commercial benchmarks for hospital admissions, subacute emissions, ER visits, and readmissions. Importantly, this is concurrent with high quality scores as evidenced by its Medicare ACO quality scores of more than 97 points. Clearly, these are impressive results. Can you describe how VillageMD's care delivery model and technology is able to produce such outstanding results across this diverse risk-based contract portfolio? And how is it possible to fundamentally change how patients experience healthcare and to optimize the quality and cost of care delivery so consistently when there's such a differentiation across patient groups? I'll agree with you first. It would be easier to have a homogenous patient population. It would be easier if all patients were 62-year-old diabetics or 
or 42-year-old hypertensives, but that was never an option for us. When we started Village, the goal was to meet doctors where they were. And the average primary care doctor in this country sees about 30% Medicare and about 70% commercial in terms of payer mix. If you think about what many models have done, they've told docs, join us and fire 70% of your patients. Focus on the 30% and you can create a different economic outcome and hopefully a better clinical outcome for, for your patients. But what did that do? It really exacerbated one of the underlying problems in our healthcare system, which is not enough primary care doctors. So we wanted to build a model that would actually expand doctor's panels and not contract them. So instead of contracting them by limiting them to a certain product or payer, we expanded them through the use of technology and, and team-based care. So it was, it was never an option for us. I think too often patients are delineated by, by payer status, and they really shouldn't be. They should be delineated or stratified most importantly, by disease status, by utilization status, by social determinants of health. And there's nothing unique about going from 64 to 65 when you have COPD or congestive heart failure or diabetes that somehow changes the way that you would be managed. We really believe that to be successful in primary care, you need a longitudinal experience with your patients, many times over decades. So that as they age into those ages, there is a greater incidence of chronic disease that you and they are better prepared as a team to actually manage that disease. So would it be easier to have a homogenous population? Absolutely. Is it clinically more satisfying to have a diverse population to take care of? I would say that's the reason that most people chose specialties like internal medicine and, and, and family practice. So we're hoping that, and, and we believe, and our results are certainly consistent, that you can manage across lots of different populations and that people should be segregated, not by payer status, but by, by risk stratification that's driven much more so by social determinants of, determinants of health, utilization, and, and disease burden. I wish I had an, an easy answer for how to make it easy, and it's not. But for those on, on the podcast that are in the primary care business, we, we kind of picked a tough business to be in in the first place. So anyone that thinks they can take primary care and make it easy, I think is underselling the complexity of you know, the specialty that, that I chose and that the colleagues that I work with have chosen. Dr. Fields, let's now discuss the Global and Professional Direct Contracting Model, or GPDC. The GPDC program is CMMI's most progressive program for meeting the healthcare needs of 38 million traditional Medicare beneficiaries. And the model is a game changer for value-based care in that it draws on the best elements of the prior value-based care initiatives, such as the MSP or next-gen ACOs. And it's a bigger step towards improving care and eliminating $200 billion of annual excess medical spend in Medicare's $850 billion budget, helping secure Medicare for future generations. And VillageMD is the largest participating DCE in the new direct contracting program. And it's been estimated that Village MD serves 56,000 patients in that model. And last month in modern healthcare, you and Gary Jacobs wrote an op-ed entitled, Give Medicare Direct Contracting Time to Prove Its Value or Expose Its Flaws. It countered the deeply partisan arguments against the direct contracting program, such as the one being led by the Physicians for National Health Program, which is an organization that's advocating for universal single-payer national health program. 
as one of the leading DCEs in the model program, can you provide perspective on how the direct contracting model can enable primary care providers to provide high quality care for patients with chronic conditions and improve outcomes in underserved rural and urban communities? And what would you say to the critics of DCEs that argue that this payment model will lead to aggressive diagnostic upcoding and miscategorization of patients to qualify for higher risk adjusted payments. So we are, we are pleased to be a leader in, in the DCE movement. It's unfortunate that much of it appears to have been politicized around a political agenda than around really driving and experimenting with different models of care. What we see is, is that there is a portion of, of the political base in, in Washington that believes that Medicare plus Medicare for all without any private services in, in, inside Medicare is the way to go. And what we see on the other side are people who believe that there is a public-private partnership that can drive a more effective and efficient healthcare system. I would certainly fall in, into that camp. The DCEs really allow us to be paid again in an outcome-oriented fashion and to move farther and farther away from the fee-for-service system that many of us believe is at the core of, of much of the, the runaway costs that we have here in America as compared to other countries and, and certainly higher costs without, without significantly improved outcomes on a national basis. So we're, we're thrilled to be in the DCEs. We actually believe that the care model that we have put in place, which is one that we apply to all patients across all products and all, and all payers, and fits really well with what the DCEs are trying to achieve, which is an improvement in, in quality, a lower total cost of care, a better patient experience and an improved provider experience. So the DCEs are, are where we would want all of our Medicare patients to be that, that have not chosen to be in, in a Medicare Advantage or other plan that might offer them benefits that they couldn't otherwise get through fee-for-service Medicare. I, I think the really kind of funny part about this is, is this whole area around um, diagnostic upcoding. And inside the DCE, there are guardrails. Uh, much more so than that, than those in the Medicare Advantage plan to actually make sure that, that diagnostic coding truly reflects a patient's disease burden, risk, and future healthcare spend. So there's an experiment that's really being run inside the DCEs to see if that type of risk adjustment model is more appropriate and more accurate than that currently being used in the MA population. So mine and Gary's point when, when we wrote the editorial was we've got a six-year program here. We're into just starting year, year two. We really believe that the outcomes will be consistent and successful in the four areas that, that I identified. And we're hoping that the politicians stay out of it and, and let the providers and the patients really tell the story. And the again, the, the risk adjustment kind of um, categorization is, is, is silly inside of the DCE because of the guardrails that are in place as part of, of that program. I did want to touch a little bit on a part of your question around underserved rural and, or urban communities. There are many patients who live in those communities who for whatever reason do not have access to a provider who participates in one of the Medicare Advantage plans, or they're more comfortable going to providers and, and hospitals and ancillaries and specialists in their neighborhood that may not traditionally have participated in managed care. And inside the DCE, those providers, if they're providing true outcome-oriented care, are gonna deliver a better result and a better patient experience inside the DCE because the, the financial incentives really line up with the clinical incentives, which is how do you invest in prevention and wellness 
early diagnosis of chronic disease and reduction of exacerbations. And that's what our model is across all products, all patients and all payers. And inside the DCE, we don't treat those patients differently than, than we do any other patient. So we're thrilled to have more a, a larger percentage of our physicians' panels included in, in these types of, of outcome-oriented reimbursement models. Dr. Fields, I love the conversation that you've had about direct contracting with Eric. You guys are the biggest participant by far in that model, and you're really driving some amazing innovation there. Let's talk a little bit more about another area of innovation where you're making similar waves, and that's the area of contracting directly with employers. We really need solutions in this employer-sponsored health insurance marketplace right now. The market covers 157 million Americans, but it's dysfunctional and ineffective in producing value in health. With poor health costing employers $530 billion on top of the $880 billion they already spend in premium dollars. We all know the quote from legendary investor Warren Buffett when he said, medical costs are the tapeworm of American economic competitiveness. In the intro to our podcast, Governor Levitt talks about how we are in a race to make value-based care work in our country in order to stay economically competitive in this global marketplace. There are obviously several tailwinds like shifting demographics, federal policy, health equity, and consumerism that are driving us to value-based care. However, as a catalyzing force, it seems like employers may be the most powerful player in the healthcare market. They've been the sleeping giants of the US healthcare system for years, but now they're awake, they're active, and they're getting angry. How will large self-insured employers drive the healthcare industry towards higher levels of cost? and outcomes performance. Will advanced primary care, value-based pharmacy plan design, and pharmacy integration with centers of excellence and benefit plan design create the necessary incentives for change? How is Village MD thinking about its relationship with large self-funded employers that need access to more innovative care models for their employees? Yeah, so, so it's practiced medicine now for 30 years, and I'm going to say for every one of those 30 years, I've heard that healthcare costs are unsustainable, and we say it over and over again, and clearly it was wrong in 2000, wrong in 2010, and looks like it was wrong in 2020, but it does feel like the inflection point is closely approaching where employers are demanding from the healthcare community the kind of, of results that they would expect from, from their sheet metal makers or, or their plumbers or, or whoever else they were, they were working with. And I think over the last probably 18 months, I've been involved in more employer conversations than probably the entire you know, 29 years prior to that. And I think what, what the employers are recognizing is, is that they've heard a lot of voices. They've heard the voices of, of the payer industry. They've heard the voices of, of the broker industry. And, and what they really want to hear is the voice of the provider industry in how to solve some of these problems. And as larger and larger groups like Village put resources in place that allow them to report on outcomes, that allow them to take delegated responsibilities, that allow them to take because of the, of the financial capabilities, allowed them to take capitation and fix risk for employers. I think this is a conversation that's gonna continue to grow. I think there's always gonna be, be a place for, for the broker communities and the payer communities and the provider communities to work together. But I think you're gonna see all three of those communities at the table with employers and not just one or two, and you, you can pick whichever one or two that might be there, but we're excited about it. We, we, we think employers are, are gonna to gravitate to a model like ours, which 
is a highly accessible model. Offices typically open seven to seven, seven days a week with 24 seven digital access and physicians on call in the communities where patients work and play. So when we think about, about our locations, our co-located clinics with, with Walgreens, we think about how many of those are near site to employers. And, and I, I'll say this, I'm repeating a Walgreens saying, and I believe it's 90% of all Americans live within five miles of a Walgreens. It's not hard to see how the investment that they've made in on-site clinics could conceivably pivot to more of a near-site clinic with an expanded set of services and accessibility. So we think that as, as primary care groups come together, as they continue to build resources, both in technology and analytics, um, and also the ability to manage risk in the commercial world, that we're gonna see more robust conversations between employers and provider groups that typically have been mediated by brokers and by payers. Well, Dr. Fields, as we finish up our conversation today, We'd love to hear your thoughts on the state of the value movement. And I mean, we're at this historic moment in time in an industry that's reeling from the stressors of pandemic response and recovery. And we're at a time also where CMMI is re-engineering their entire portfolio of APMs to further accelerate the transition to value-based care. And then the value movement now is becoming more largely focused on care for underserved populations with CMMI now looking to embed health equity in all of its payment models going forward. And as value-based payment reaches a critical mass in the years to come, the total addressable market for Village MD is projected to grow 7% annually through 2025 to 1.4 trillion with the potential to expand even further as the market continues to shift to full risk-based, value-based arrangements. So I wanted to ask you at a national level, how is the value-based care movement changing given the, the much-needed focus on equity and SDOH? And in your opinion, is the needle moving fast enough in our industry when it comes to the acceleration of value-based payment? And then also with Village MD, given the total addressable market that's going to grow over time as the payment landscape shifts, how is the company preparing for high scalability as it positions itself for the future growth in this race to value? You know, I think back to when I went into practice in 1991, around 1993, I, we signed our first PPO um, network agreement and we thought that was going to be the end of it. And, and then in the late nineties, we moved to primary here capitation and that didn't seem to make a whole lot of difference. And, the early 2000s, we, we moved to narrow networks, and, and that didn't seem to really make a difference. And over the last eight to 10 years, we started to move to a value-based type of, out, of an outcome-oriented payment mechanism. And of all of those trends, I, I don't think I could be more bullish than the one that we're currently in. When we talk about value-based care, we're talking about healthcare the way and the place that patients want it. And, and that's a lot different than any of those prior constructs, which were much more around the provider community instead of the patient community. So I, it's hard for me to imagine that some form of, of outcome-based reimbursement will not continue to drive our system for, for decades to come because it makes sense. It, it just absolutely makes sense. I mean, I wouldn't take my car in and, and have the air conditioning fixed on Monday and have it break on Wednesday and go back on Thursday and expect to pay again. But that's what we do in healthcare. 
we, we just continue to pay every time that we touch the system or that's the way that we have in the past. And it, it's hard to imagine that, that employers or government agencies or patients are gonna be willing to go back to that type of model. So we're, we're overly bullish with it, the capital B that an outcome-based reimbursement model will be the model that drives healthcare in the future and that it will sit with primary care physicians and patients at the center of it. One thing we haven't touched on is, is where healthcare dollars get spent and 80, 85% of those dollars are spent on patients with chronic disease. So it's not hard to know who those patients are and they're not defined by age or by payer. They're def defined by disease burden. So will there be challenges to continue to accelerate value-based care? Absolutely. I mean, there are incumbents in place who at their core believe that they are doing the right thing, but those things are hard to back up with data. And, and what we're seeing is as we move to a more data-oriented system and that data becomes available to those who ultimately pay for healthcare, that the demands will continue to go up and we believe organizations like Village that are really just based on, on a risk stratified, proactive primary care team-based model will be the ones that can deliver results across all patients' products and payers, um, as opposed to many models that, as you mentioned earlier, have chosen to segment out either payer or patient populations. So we, we think the market will continue to grow. We think ultimately the market should be 100% of the healthcare delivered in this country, if not delivered across the world, because that's, that's the right way for docs to get up in the morning and think about how to drive what their patients actually want. I, I think one of the things, and you touched at the very end of your question on scalability, one of the things that, that we're most pleased about has been the ability of our model to scale into multiple, multiple markets over a relatively short period of time. We will open north of 120 co-located clinics with Walgreens, never mind those that we, we open and manage in, in other community settings in 2022. That type of scale has never been achieved in the primary care delivery system. And we, we know that every year as we do it, we continue to get better. And if there's one thing that I could tell you leads to that, that success, and I have to give credit to my partners, Tim Barry and Paul Martino, is that they have left this as a clinically driven, clinician driven model. That at every aspect of our clinical model, our physician leaders are driving the changes, demanding from our, our operators and, and those who work for them, what they need to take care of patients. And I think if we continue to do that, that, that scaling will, will continue to be something that surprises us at how successful it can be done. And, and again, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't be more excited about reaching more neighborhoods and more communities. Uh, I think those of you who may have read any of the recent material that's been published around Village know that we've stated that 50% of our, our new co-located clinics will be in underserved and rural communities. And we see a, just a huge opportunity to deliver the risk-stratified, proactive team-based care that I've described to those patients many times in communities that have previously been underserved and also many times where patients lived in what I would call a healthcare desert where the pharmacist unfortunately was put in a really tough predicament as the, the sole source of, of healthcare device with limited resources to take care of patients in those markets. So big markets, they continue to grow. We're absolutely bullish on economic models that, that pay for outcomes and and I think what we've shown at Village is the ability to scale in ways that, that really no other primary care organization has done. And, and we recognize 
as, as humbly as, as I say that, that the key to that success is really putting control in the hands of, of the docs that see patients and the physician leaders who work with them. Well, Dr. Fields, we could not be any more thankful for having you on our show this week. We share your enthusiasm, your optimism for the future of value-based care. We've been following your work for several years, and it's great to see all of your success. I mean, the success of your, your team and, you know, starting with 13 physicians in 2013, growing a network of over 2,500 primary care affiliates and growing. But most importantly, you know, to your comments earlier, it's really around the outcomes and having a clinically driven, clinician-driven model. And we, we just couldn't be more happy about all the, the great success and what you've built there. And we wanted to thank you for being such a leader for family physicians, helping them succeed in the future of value-based care. It's great work. And hopefully we can continue the conversation in the years to come on the race to value. I can't thank you enough for, again, for the time today to share a little bit about, about my personal um, ride in healthcare and, and more importantly, the ride that Village MD has been in over the last eight years. For those in the audience who are interested in learning a little bit more about Village, and um, whether you're a provider, whether you're, you're a payer, whether you're an employer or consumer of, of healthcare, and we'd be happy to, to have that conversation. We can be reached at, at villagemd.com. So um, Eric, thanks again. Really appreciate the opportunity to get in front of your audience. It's our pleasure. Thanks so much, Dr. Fields. Take care.